Well, we are going to have a chance to continue celebrating and worship the powerful name of Jesus on Christmas Eve. And I just want to give you a couple of announcements related to that. We have eight identical Christmas Eve celebrations on the same day, and then we put the band and me in a wheelbarrow, and we, we wheelbarrow us into a bed, and we collapse there. So that's going to be going on on uh, December 24th. Complimentary tickets are available at the tables in the atrium uh, near the fireplace. Tickets are no longer available for the 1, the 3, the 4, and the 5 p.m. services. Uh, it's possible that tickets will be returned. Um, that will all be held on the day of Christmas Eve. And so sometimes when people come in, if somebody returns their tickets, we'll have some available. But we want to make sure that everybody has a spot. There will be overflow seating available at all services throughout the building, shown on TV and video screens. And to give uh, the Horizon staff ample time to prepare for this and the services, we will not be having Saturday services that weekend, the day before Christmas Eve. So if you want to get prepared for that. Well, today we're continuing a Christmas series called What Child Is This? Showing how Jesus' life actually confirmed he was the one born from God. And do that today. I want to show you the mindset, the Jewish mindset of what was going on at that particular time and those particular dates when Jesus was born. What was the mindset during that time? So we can better understand how incredibly crucial the timing was of Jesus' death, of Jesus' birth. And I want to try and show you, and we're going to take the long way around to get there, but stay with me. I want to try and show you today that Jesus is the new Noah. Jesus' birth to the mindset of the people at the time was that Jesus was the new Noah, the ultimate Noah, the full Noah they've been looking for. I want to give you three reasons why, and then we're going to get into three applications on how we can take the, the life, the death, the power of Jesus as this new Noah and incorporate into our life as we face challenges this season and as we face temptation. First reason. The first reason Jesus is the new Noah is because he was born to renew creation. He didn't just come to get us to heaven. He came to renew creation, to bring a full shalom or peace to creation. So a little bit of the Jewish mindset. The month of Tishri occurs in what we call September-October. And this was considered the new year, the renewing of creation. One Jewish historian said it this way, Judaism regards New Year's Day, in the month of Tishri, not merely as an anniversary of creation, but more importantly, as a renewal of it. This is when the world is reborn. And that month was pretty important for three reasons. You see three Jewish feasts there. It was a reminder of the Feast of Atonement, God washed clean. Everything that had been done in the past. It was the Feast of Trumpets, a reminder of renewed creation as you brought in the final harvest. And thank God for everything he'd done for the year. And you're going to restart the agricultural calendar. But it was also the Feast of Tabernacles. A reminder that God came from heaven to dwell among us in the tabernacle. Later to dwell among us in the temple. And it looked forward to an ultimate tabernacling of God when he would come to earth finally through the Messiah. So the Feast of Tishri, or the, the month of Tishri, was a very significant month in the life of the Jewish people because it was all about renewal and new beginnings and new starts. It was all about the renewing of creation. Secondly, Tishri was a month that two of the feasts pointed to significance. Trumpet, you would blow the trumpet, gather together all of the harvest. It was a reminder that, that 
Creation was being renewed as you gathered in what God had provided for you. It also had the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, a little bit about that. Let me zoom in on this agricultural map. You'll see the way the Jewish festivals work in the winter months. It was during the winter months they had all the rain. And then you had several harvests. You had a uh, harvest here, and then another harvest here, a grape harvest here, an olive harvest here. The season came to an end at the end of the year in the month of Tishri. And it was during that month that you would plow over your fields, and the next month you would replant the fields as the new beginning of a renewed creation. Something happened interesting during those months. Because the harvest season, one harvest season after another, came to an end, before you would plow your fields in Tishri, there was some leftover olives that hadn't been eaten, some, some, some leaves that hadn't been eaten. Before you plowed it all under, you would turn to the local shepherds or those who worked for you who are shepherds and say, hey, come on, go ahead and let your sheep eat the last of the vegetation here before we plow it under. In fact, there was so much often in the fields that the shepherds would live out in the fields during that time while their sheep were eating of the leftover from the harvest before they plowed it under. So it was a time of festivities, a time of renewal. It was a time of new beginnings. And look at the hints we get in the, in the Gospels about this particular time. It says in Galatians that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, to buy back those who'd been in bondage, to give renewal and new starts and new beginnings to those. In the book of John, it says, and the word, God himself became flesh and he dwelt among us. And the word in Greek literally means he tabernacled with us. And could it be that God came to tabernacle with us on the exact same month and day of the Feast of Tabernacle than predicted for over thousands of years by Moses? Another hint. In the book of Colossians, it describes Jesus, that in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God dwelt in him, and and he came to earth not just to get you to heaven, but to reconcile or renew all things to himself. Jesus was the ultimate renewer the ultimate reconciler, the ultimate shalom giver. Put that on the shelf for a second. Jesus came to renew creation. Two, Jesus came to defeat evil. And again, looking at the Jewish mindset, and you can Google this and get more information than you can possibly ever want, I'm going to give you the cliff notes. Jewish tradition is that Noah was born on Tishri 1. They get this from the book of Genesis, that Moses was 600 years old when he went into the ark, and as it notes here, he's 601 when he gets off, so he had a birthday. And the Jewish tradition is that on the day he gets off the ark, the first day of Tishri, was a renewal of creation. God had washed all that was evil clean. It was a new beginning, a new start for the farm, a new start for the family, a new start for the world. And so for the Jewish mindset, Tishri was an important month because it was the month of Noah's birthday. And it was the month that Noah, God used Noah to cleanse the earth and give a new beginning or a new renewal to the earth. And Noah had been used to defeat two problems in the world. On this side was the problem of man's rebellion. In Genesis chapter 3, the world says the reason the, the Bible says the word, the reason the, the world is so destroyed is because man and women rebelled against God. 
And that's why it was such a broken world and such a broken heart. However, to the Jewish mind, it wasn't just the fall of man that caused what's wrong in the world. There was also the influence of of spiritual, dark, demonic forces that have taken over the world. And that comes out of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim, which are the evil forces, these fallen angels, come to earth, dwell among the earth, and basically cause havoc, betrayal, evil, etc., And Noah, and God used Noah and the ark to wash away much of the evil intention of so many people doing evil, but also to defeat the spiritual forces that had taken over the world. But God was looking forward to, and the people were looking forward to, the ultimate Noah who could defeat evil once and for all. The ultimate Noah who could destroy what was broken from the evil forces as well as mankind's rebellion. And I want to propose that Jesus was born in the exact same month of those three festivals, maybe even born on the exact same day of New Year's Day for the Jewish mindset, maybe even born the very day that they thought was Noah's birthday, to show that he's the ultimate one who could renew creation and the ultimate one who could defeat evil once and for all. Here are the hints in the text. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar was a smart guy. He knew that two million Jews would be migrating three times during the year. The Feast of Passover, they were required to migrate. The Feast of Pentecost, they were required to travel. And the Feast of Tabernacle, outlined in Deuteronomy, or maybe Exodus. So, in those days, he would have taken the natural migration patterns and said, while you're on your way, you've got to be registered. And so there's a man named Joseph who went up to be registered with his wife because he was of the household of David, and he goes to Bethlehem. While they were there, the days were completed for her to be born, and she brought forth her firstborn son, possibly on New Year's Day of the month of Tishri. More hints in the text. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, an inn was not like a motel, like we think about an inn. It was an add-on part of the building. You had your main house, and you built an inn. And that inn could be used for several things. During the harvest season, when you just brought in the full harvest, you would basically fill that up with your food. So the reason there's no room in the inn could be twofold. One, you just finished the final harvest of the year, so the inn is filled with your harvest, so there's no place for people. The other option is, because people are migrating to the Feast of Tabernacles, the reason the place is full is because of the registry related to the traveling, and they were taking in visitors who were traveling up to Jerusalem. Either way, it suggests we're in the month of Tishri because of the harvest or because of the traveling for Tabernacle. Now, while they were there, the shepherds were living out in the fields. Again, if you look at that map again, you would not let shepherds come out in your fields any other time of year because you were still harvesting. One harvest after another harvest after another harvest. The one time of year before you plowed everything under that shepherds lived in the fields with their sheep was the month of Tishri right before you plowed and replanted for renewed creation. And keeping watch over their flocks by night, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. 
Many Jewish commentators describe coming to the Feast of Tabernacle as the greatest celebration of joy. It was called the Festival of Light and the Festival of Joy. And there are even hints here from the angels that the ultimate joy bringer came on the ultimate day of joy. The ultimate light of the world came on the ultimate Feast of Light. All of these hints indicating that the timing of Jesus' birth, God made coincide with all of these spiritual expectations that people had at that time. Now let me give you a quick outline of the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, the Messiah is promised. In Luke chapter 2, the Messiah is born. In Luke chapter 3, which we learned last week, Luke traces his lineage not back to David, but all the way back to Noah and all the way back to Adam. As if to say, this is the Messiah who's going to be the ultimate Noah and the ultimate Adam. As one Adam brought sin into the world, this new Adam will bring life into the world. One Noah cleansed the forces of rebellion and spiritual evil. This is the ultimate Noah who will defeat evil once and for all and who will crush and deal with the need for forgiveness because of Adam's rebellion. Which is why, unlike the genealogy in Matthew... He traces us all the way back to Noah and the ultimate problem, Adam himself. So if you were writing the book of Luke, what would you make chapter 4? His baptism? No, that was in chapter 3. Would you make it his healing? Would you make it uh, the, the wedding feast like John did? Luke puts chapter 4... As Jesus going mano de mano, face to face with the very source of evil. Saying, this new Noah, this new Adam is going to start by taking on the kingdom of darkness. And he's going to start by going to the top of the stack and take on the very source of evil himself. This new Noah is going to go face to face to the one who corrupted all of the world. And the readers here would go, I recognize this. This is what we've been looking for. This is what we've been longing for. Reminds me a little bit of the, the new Thor movie, if you haven't seen it. The new Thor movie, Thor comes out in this giant coliseum, and they're like, you're about to go up against the biggest, baddest bad guy of all times, and people are cheering for this opponent. And Thor looks a little nervous, but he's ready for it. Camera pans over to this giant gate, smash, it blows forward, smash, it blows forward, out comes the Incredible Hulk. Camera pans back to Thor, and he's like, I know this guy, yes, I can't wait to take him on. He's a colleague from work. Because they work together in the Avenger movies. And people are shocked. I mean, you recognize this guy? And I think Luke putting this chapter together, people are increasingly going his lineage, his promises, his tracing. I know this guy. This is the new Noah. So they step into the corner. In chapter 4, as Jesus is taking on the devil himself. And it would sound like this, you know, Sunday, 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 big truck, big truck, big truck. Shake hands with the devil as in this corner, the prince of darkness comes up against the prince of light. Who's going to beat the battle? And we get to see in this moment, this ultimate confrontation of light and darkness. The new Noah up against the ultimate source of the, of the battle of the Nephilim. The Nephilim, rather. And in here we get so much application of not only who Jesus is defeating evil, but also three ways we can apply Christmas and apply dealing with temptation ourselves. Here's what happens. They step into the ring. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. 
in his moments of hunger, the devil comes to him and says the only thing the devil knows what to do, which is to put a big, fat question mark over God's goodness. If you're the son of God, questioning your identity, questioning your security, questioning your longings. And it's what God's been doing since Adam. Is God really looking out for your best interest? Can you really trust God? Did God really say? Question mark after question mark is Satan's strategy. And so here's Satan. If you're the son of God, if it's really true, if, 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 if. And Jesus each time reaches back, grabs some verse from Deuteronomy or the law, and says, boom, it is written. You shall not live by bread alone. And Satan sort of backs himself back up. He tries a couple more question marks. No, if you really were God, if you prove to me who you really are. And Jesus again will reach back into Deuteronomy and go, bam, it is written again. And Jesus does something that I think you and I need. Whenever Satan comes and puts a question mark in our life, if God really is good, then why did you get that health report? If God really is good and his word really works, then why are your kids rebelling? If Christianity really is true, then why would you be struggling with the temptations you struggle with? And we have the same solution Jesus has, that every time the devil brings us a question mark, we pull out the ultimate exclamation point and say, no, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I am covered by the blood of him, and therefore I am not in bondage to guilt or shame. The ultimate exclamation point, God's promises are true even if they aren't coming true in the moment. They will come true because God is faithful. We continue to bring to bear upon the situation God's promises. I was listening to a, a podcast or a video actually of a guy, a pastor friend who I'm inviting to come speak here later this year. And a couple of years ago, he had just devastating news. He found out that his wife had been unfaithful. And he sat down, I remember he was sitting in his chair as he described the story, and he's sharing with his congregation just his question marks. Why would God let this happen? Why did I not see this coming in my marriage? I feel like such a fool. I feel so ashamed. And as he was sharing in this talk, just very vulnerably and very real about the chaos that had come upon his life, he said, you know what I've chosen to do, though? I'm going to choose to forgive, even though she hasn't asked for forgiveness. He said, and the verse that's really been helping me, the it is written verse that's helped me during this time of grief, I think it was Psalms 56, that God bottles up our tears. And as you face grief or loss this Christmas, and you wonder, can God really be trusted? How could God let this happen? There's a way to put an exclamation point on saying, but God comforts me in my sorrow. I'm going to forgive when I don't feel like forgiving. In fact, that verse was so powerful, I used it in a funeral that we did two, three weeks ago. So I walked down the center aisle with a widow in her 40s and her three kids. And we talked about a God who literally catches our tears, sees every one of them, and draws near to us. He, he really is a wonderful counselor. So putting an exclamation point is really holding on to the promises of God when Satan is doing everything he can to question it. The second part of this battle or temptation occurs 
with the next words from the devil. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all this authority I will give you, which means God has given it to him temporarily because the evil forces are in charge of the world. And it's been delivered to me. It's been given to me for a time. And I will give it to whomever I wish, Satan says. Therefore, if you will worship me, all of it will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, again, reaches in the scripture, Get behind me, Satan! It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And I love this idea that Jesus saw the connection. He realized that all decisions are decisions of worship. There aren't spiritual activities and non-spiritual activities. How we recreate is a spiritual act. How we work, how we parent, how we spouse, how we talk, how we spend, how we save, how we give, how we love, how we forgive, how we grieve. These are all spiritual acts of worship. And Satan will always try and convince you that God doesn't care so much about this area of your life. This is a non-spiritual issue. You can do whatever you want here. But Jesus shows us here that all aspects of your life, every decision you make is an act of worship. What if you began to see your whole life as an act of worship? As a chance to put God first in this moment, at this time, in this situation. That's what Jesus does. I want to serve God through everything, including out in the wilderness. Thirdly, Jesus refused to use God to get what he really wanted. He refused to use God as a vending machine to get what he really wanted. And the same thing's true for us. Often we say we want God, but we really want God to give us a comfortable life. And when we're not having a comfortable life, we're mad at God because he didn't get us what we really wanted. A happy marriage, obedient children. And these idols, good things, become more important than the God who gives those good things. And we get mad at God that he's not giving us what we deserve because we've been using God to get what we really wanted. And Satan does the same thing with Jesus here. He brings him to Jerusalem. He sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, which was the capstone right on the corner. I'll show you where in a second. And he says to him, if, and there it is again, if you are the son of God, big question mark, throw yourself down from here. And Satan goes, I can play this game. I'll reach into scripture because Satan loves twisted scripture. Bam! It says that God won't let the Holy One be crushed. His angels will protect him. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And now the devil had ended the temptation. He departed until that time. With a knockout blow, Satan tries to even twist scripture itself. And Jesus again says, no, no, no. I'm not going to use the word or use God to get what I really want. I want God more than all. I want to worship him more than all. He is my number one thing. Now, interesting, let me show you where where this place is, this pinnacle of the temple. Herod's temple looked like this in its day. Much of it's been destroyed and crushed and broken down. The place the priest would come to the pinnacle to announce to the people, he would stand here. He would announce to all the people in the area, time to come into worship, time to start, blow the horn. So this is the very location that, that Satan was holding Jesus when he gave him this temptation. So back in 2012, we got a chance to go to Israel. And while we were there, we're we're going through the rubble. And in the rubble here, the Romans had knocked all these pieces down. And sure enough, on one of the capstones, one of the bouldery capstones, it has a marking on it that it was the capstone. It was the corner capstone. And it's this rock right here behind my wife and I. Meaning that this was the actual spot 
that was on the corner of the pinnacle of the temple, the actual spot that Satan and the devil had this conversation. And it was in this moment that Jesus, the new Noah, defeated evil, the source of evil once and for all, which is why all through Luke, he takes on, casts out demonic forces, takes on the forces of darkness, because he's bringing his kingdom to earth. And he wants to bring his kingdom to you and I as well. A kingdom that defeats shame, a kingdom that defeats bitterness, a kingdom that brings purpose to life, a kingdom that unshackles you from your idols. And you can have that when you believe and connect yourself to the power of Jesus and use the tools he has. It is written when temptation comes your way. So I want to pray for us that we can tap into that power and then I want to tell you a quick story before we're done about where God is leading us at this opportune time we have. Father, thank you for this powerful story of Jesus and his birth and how his life confirmed that he was the one sent from you, Father. We thank you for that, Father, and we ask you to just continue to lead us as a church and lead us as people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me tell you a quick story before we end. I'm going to go back about 20 years. 20 years ago, about 30 people gathered together in somebody's backyard and said, let's start a church. And that church grew from 30 people and got big enough that they had to get out of the backyard and they had to move to Indian Hill High School. And now we're up to 50, 70 people and it just kept growing. So much so we said, we need to move to Cincinnati Country Day School. We got to Cincinnati Country Day School and we had one service and we had another service on Wednesday and the Wednesday service had like half of this section. I, I remember coming my first day at Horizon and when I got there, there was more people on stage than in the audience listening. <laughs> totally true. And yet I bought into this vision of creating a two-service design where people could come and know God. We kept growing. We kept growing so much so that we said, we got to move our Wednesday service with verse-by-verse Bible teaching back to the weekend. So we started doing two services on the weekend, and we kept growing. We went to build this building, and we were really nervous because we had only 200 people coming to our exploring service and about 75 people coming to our equipping service. We thought a 500-person auditorium, oh my goodness, this isn't going to work. Why is it not going to work? It's going to be so empty. We've been going for seven years. Like the, we're really excited about 70 people showing up at the equipping service, which would be this one, and 200 people at the exploring service. We got in here, and after about three months, we filled up the two services. So we had a third, and we crammed them together. A couple years later, that continued to grow, and so we had a Saturday service. And we added two more pew rows, by the way, because nobody ever sits in the front row, so now the second row became a row people used. So we added that. And we kept growing. We had a Saturday service, and we just kept growing. And we have what's called a high-quality problem. Too many people want to come to Horizon. Too many people want to hear the Bible in a relevant, powerful, deep, compelling way. So about two years ago, our um, strategic teams looked together and said, we've got to find a new solution. Now, we've got an auditorium on our master plan. It's a $20 million addition. How can we continue to delay that as long as possible to steward what we have and where we are? So they said, we really need to go to creating a unique environment within the current footprint of the church where we can have a 100-person seat area to watch our services. Because church consultants say when you're at 80%, which the service is at, and our 10 o'clock service is well over 100%. We filled up the chapel. We filled up the hearth room. We filled up the overflow rooms. We used all of our headsets. We don't have any more space. And now people are being turned away at our 10 o'clock service. So our team said, for us two years we've been looking at adding a 100-person space, but then we don't want to be a less-than experience. How do we make that space that we're going to create a more-than experience, not a less-than? We've got to have high technology. 
we've got to switch these security cameras that we're shooting the service with with actual video cameras. We need to have an actual video room where we can mix that so it's broadcast quality. And then we need some room within the current footprint of the church where we can broadcast that on, a, on an LED screen with a live band. So as we've researched multiple different churches and what they've done and how they've done this and what's been successful, that seems like success. Create a unique, customized experience where people come and it doesn't feel like a less than. Maybe there's an omelet bar there. Maybe there's a waffle bar there. But this is like a sought-after place to come. But to do that, we've got to shoot the service as well, produce the service as well, and project the service as well. So as we've been looking at that, that's going to allow us, number one, to have a church within a church. Meaning if we built a, a, the, the, a typical church in America today, average size is 80 to 100 people. So if you're going to start a new church, which is what we're going to do, we're just going to start it within the current footprint of the church. So starting a brand new church, size of most churches in America, it's 20% increase over our current capacity within our current footprint. So to do that, we're going to have a church within a church. And for those of you who said, I wish I'd been there in the the 30 people CCD days. I wish I'd been there before we got in this new building. I wish I'd been there to be part of the Saturday service movement. This is your chance to get on the ground floor of serving and being part of a group of 30 growing to 100 people who know each other, who serve each other, who greet each other, who create this new environment. And finally, after 20 years, we're finally going to have our services on video. So for those of you who travel all the time, I really wish I could, or my kids are going to college and they love Horizon, we'll finally be able to get a chance to watch or live stream the services on our website. And that'll be a chance for you not only to hear a great message, but send that message to a friend of yours. This is all of what we're, we're looking to do. And we think there's three reasons why we should do it. Number one, we shouldn't be having to turn people away from church services. I mean, if people want to hunger that their kids and their teenagers and, and their, their own lives and their marriages want to hunger for God, how can we not find a solution for this? Two, cost-wise, if you take the cost of this building, which in case you don't know it, is 100% paid for, because of the successful and faithful giving of people who gave for four years so that we could be in a debt-free building. But the cost per seat, 500, seat, 500 seats here, was about $50,000 per seat. That's how much it costs when we build this building. The 20% addition, the way we're thinking about doing it, it's only going to cost us $10,000 a seat. Maybe we could put it on an auditorium, but it's back up to $50,000, $60,000 a seat. We thought this is the most cost-effective way to do it. And if you want to start a church plant... Well, it costs a lot more than what the numbers are coming in at. So we love the idea of the community. We love the idea of the cost. It just makes so much sense to delay building an auditorium. And we feel like the cause of Christ is one reason we've got to do it. So team has come back and said that in order to get all that done, it's going to be about a million dollars for those three things. The LED screens, the video production, and the video camera room. And that's a million dollars of what we're calling the... the the growth fund or the expanded church fund or the future growth fund. And many people have been giving to that last couple of years. But in order for us to move forward and to do it really as soon as possible so we're not turning people away, we're going to try and toward the end of the year in the first month ask you to pray about giving to that capital fund for a million dollars. It's going to require a few hundred to $300,000 gifts. It's going to require some $10,000 to $100,000 gifts. And it's going to require many, many, many $100 to $10,000 gifts. So what I encourage you to do, if you believe in the vision of our church, and if you believe that this is, one, a good way to delay a bigger purchase and to help our friends know Christ, I would just ask you to pray about that this season. Pray about what God may challenge you to do to be part of that capital campaign. The other part is that we feel like in order to do that, based on all the research we did, you need a live band 
which is going to require some more resources. And if we grow the church another 20%, we're out of space in our children's ministry too. So that $200,000 operational budget will allow us to put the resources in place to keep that expansion going and keeping up with technology. So what we're hoping is that you will pray about those two things. And notice they're two different funds. Meaning if you take your current giving to general fund and just move it over to capital fund, that doesn't really help us because our, our operational fund is going to go up 200000 and we need a capital fund as well. So if you're praying about that this, this uh, next couple weeks and year and you feel like God's prompting you, I would just encourage you, there's three ways you can give. One, you can go to our website, horizoncc.com backslash giving. We've actually added a drop down there so you could drop down and give either to the general fund, which is our operational fund, or to our uh, future growth fund, which will go specific. And because we have debt free in this building, 100% of this is going directly for this church growth um, step that we're taking. Or you can text, you can do giving through text, and that's text GIVE to 513-817-0014. Or if you're you're old-fashioned like me, I actually occasionally write checks, you can actually write a check or uh, drop that off or stock options. But just make sure you put a distinction in there, whether God's leading you to give a certain portion to future growth or a specific amount to the general fund. And I'm hoping that we can do unto others what Christ has done for us. He who was rich became poor, that through his poverty we would be rich in Christ. And many of us have been able to experience the, the programs and the resources and, and the depth of Bible teaching here because people three years, five years, ten years ago gave and served us. And now it's our opportunity to do the same thing because we want more and more people to get into the Word. It's funny, when the church started 20 years ago, why do you need another church in Cincinnati? I mean, like, isn't there one like every other corner? They said there's two reasons why we start Horizon. Number one, we didn't feel like anyone was doing verse-by-verse Bible study, Bible teaching. And so part of our founding documents was about creating a service that had to be part of the church in its present and future that did verse-by-verse Bible teaching because we felt like that grew people in a way that nothing else did and people had abandoned that process. We also felt like more and more churches weren't creating, they were creating less boring churches but not services really designed for unconvinced people. And so we set out 20 years ago to create a two-service design to create challenging Bible teaching in all of our environments that would draw people who are convinced and unconvinced for Christ, that they would fall in love with Jesus, fall in love with God's Word, and then go and serve and create opportunities for other people to come. So I ask you to pray about that as you look to the, to the new year. You'll hear a little bit more about that as we get into January. But really, we need that money up front because we continue to have an extremely conservative view of debt. That we really want to see what God's prompting people to do before we make purchases. So pray about that, and we'll see what God does in the next uh, few weeks and months together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how faithful you have been to us. Thank you for how much you've provided. There's a lot of church leaders and a lot of pastors. They're having money conversations this time of year, and it's about cutting budgets and keeping the doors open. Father, we are just humbled, humbled that we're having conversations about creating space for people who want to know your word and are hungry for it. God, we want to steward this time to such a time as this moment in history. So God, I ask that your spirit would just prompt each person here to pray. And if you're telling them not to give anything, honor that. If you're telling them to give big, honor that, Father. But we give you full permission to work in our hearts and work in our pocketbooks as well. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions on that, I'd be delighted to answer them. Or you can always stop by the hearth room and ask as well. Thanks.